Thanks, guys. Good evening, crew. How are you guys doing? Woo! My name is Julie Yoder. I'm on staff here um, with crew. Um, I'm on our staff team here. I am a Ball State grad, and yeah, I studied graphic design here. And um, it's, a, it's so fun to be back here at Ball State serving with crew. My husband is also on staff here, Sean. Uh, so we love doing life and ministry together. Um, and we're going to add another little one to our ministry family because <laughs> we're, expecting, we're expecting our first child this summer. So we're super excited about that. Yeah. Um, so tonight we're going to start a new talk series called Making It Count, Living Purposefully in Light of Eternity. And we're going to discuss what it means to live our lives on purpose and to make our lives count. Um, but I want to start by telling you about the summer after my freshman year of college. That summer was nothing like I hoped for or ever expected. My mission was to get a waitressing job and make a lot of money and tips over the summer. But when I moved home and started job searching, I discovered that this was way more difficult than I ever expected. Um, see, I discovered that restaurants were not too keen on hiring a waitress who had no experience, who had never done that before, um, and someone who was underage, who wasn't able to serve their money-making alcoholic drinks. And so as the summer week stretched on, I began getting desperate to find full-time work. And I was offered a job waitressing in a restaurant where the clientele's like, average age was about 50, uh, but they could only give me part-time work. So I humbled myself and reapplied for my high school fast food job, but they could only give me a few hours a week. So then I took another job as a cashier in a department store. And so I ended up juggling for the rest of the summer three jobs. My romantic dreams of waiting tables and making lots and lots of tips was crashing to the ground, just like the water cups that I kept dropping in the restaurant, because it turns out I was not such a great waitress after all. I was often working two shifts at two jobs in one day, running from one place to another. I was running myself into the ground, but I clung to the hope that it would be worth it for the money. The time came to get ready to move back to Ball State, and with that came the tuition bill in the mail. And so because I had actually worked a lot that summer and made a lot of money, um, I was able um, to write one big check um, and pay for that summer's tuition. Um, but what had happened earlier that summer was that every time I picked up my paycheck, I would greedily watch the numbers grow in my bank account. And I would, I would take a small amount of joy and glee in kind of watching those numbers rise. I was doing it all for the money. So after I wrote this big check, that felt really great to pay for a summer's tuition, um, or a semester's tuition. But then when I looked back at my bank account and saw how much money I had left, it, everything changed because it was gone. Everything I had worked for, um, everything that I had worked myself into the ground for, it was gone like that in a moment. In one moment, I fully comprehended the futility of investing my life in something like money. One, one moment it was there, the next moment it was gone. And I had nothing to show for my exhaustion. Yes, I had another semester of school paid for, but I had five more of those to pay for after that. 
I realized that I had walked into completely um, absorbed with trying to gain more money for myself that summer. What are some things that you're absorbed with trying to gain for yourself? Maybe it's money or a certain body type or a grade or a GPA or that perfect internship. Maybe it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend or bragging rights about what you did over the weekend or maintaining a certain reputation or social circle. Isn't it true that we're all absorbed with trying to gain more something for ourselves in life? You might be thinking, Julie, you're implying that those things are bad and those things aren't good. Well, I would say that those things in and of themselves aren't all bad, but let's look beyond that for a moment and ask why we're trying to gain those things in life. What are we searching for? I think that behind all of these things, we want to be significant. We want our lives to matter. We want them to count for something. But is it possible that making our lives count comes through something very different than gaining all that we can for ourselves? And that's exactly what we're going to discover tonight. Will you pray with me as we begin? Lord, I thank you for who you are. Thanks for this evening. Thanks for the opportunity to dig into your word and to explore what it looks like to make our lives count. So I pray, Lord, that your spirit um, would work through my words, Lord, through scripture um, to reveal truth to us and motivate us um, to live for you. In your name, amen. If you guys have a Bible with you, I encourage you to pull that out. Or if you want to pull it up on a device, you can do that too. Um, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3. This, in this book, Paul is, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Christians in Philippi, which is a city in modern-day Greece. And at this point, Paul has been a missionary for about 20 or 30 years. He's writing from a prison cell in Rome where he was put simply because he was sharing the gospel with people. And at this point in the letter, he's helping these Christians discern the difference between putting confidence in the things they have done for God and the things that he has done for them. So let's see how he describes this. And it should be on the screen as well. Philippians 3, verses uh, 4 through 6. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul is laying out his personal and spiritual resume here. He says, if anybody is going to get bragging rights about everything that they've gained in life, he's got everyone beat. No one can touch him. He starts by describing his pure heritage, circumcised on the eighth day. Basically, this means that from birth, this is who he is. No one can ever say that he's been anything else. Of the people of Israel, he's a member of God's chosen race. The tribe of Benjamin means that he has an honorable ancestry. A Hebrew of Hebrews means that he has a pure bloodline on both his mother and his father's side. So Paul takes pride in his pure heritage. No one could have chosen a better background for themselves. He goes on to describe his elite status among Judaism. He's a Pharisee, which is the elite elite sect of Judaism, they were highly educated. These are the PhDs of Judaism. They were known for being minutely strict 
when it came to the rules and regulations of Judaism. In terms of righteousness under the law, Paul says that he's blameless, which means that outwardly, he's like, I'm morally perfect. I've done nothing wrong. So Paul can boast in how he has gained elite moral and religious status among his peers. He also describes his passion. He says, as to zeal, I'm a persecutor of the church. He was so passionate about his religion that he was a leading activist. He leads the way in passionate devotion to his religion. All of this together made Paul a force to be reckoned with. He had the best family background, a PhD in his field. He was highly regarded by those around him. He was the most passionate about the things in his field and the most impactful with it. Maybe he even had his own cult following, like a best-selling book, um, or he had his own speaking circuit in the synagogues. He was an intellectual and an activist. He was changing the world for the Jewish community. He was everything that others wanted to be. But then Paul takes a surprising turn as he considers all that he has gained for himself. Let's read on in verses 7 and 8. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul says that everything he has gained for himself, everything that he can brag and that he can boast about, is nothing compared to how much more valuable Jesus is to him. And Paul doesn't shy away from using some pretty strong language to describe this either. The word loss that he uses in Greek to describe his, um, his gains for himself means disadvantage or a detriment. And the word rubbish that he uses in verse 8 The English translators were actually really kind and kind of soft when they chose this word because in the original Greek language, the word that Paul uses here actually means things that are worthless and detestable. And it uses the example of the excrement of animals. So we're talking about like animal dung here, like in a literal way. Crap, if you will. So Paul is comparing his can't touch this achievements to a literal pile of steaming, gag-inducing animal crap. Most of us don't see all of our achievements that way, right? So why on earth would Paul take this view? Well, he goes on to explain in verses 9 through 11. He says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is looking to gain something 100 more times more valuable than anything that he could possibly gain for himself. And that's Jesus. And he looks at three things specifically that Jesus gains him. One is the righteousness of Christ. That's the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus given to his people 
when they place their faith in him. It puts us in right and perfect standing before God forever. He speaks of arriving at the resurrection. This is not something that um, Paul is looking to earn or to gain for himself, but the word here means to reach or to um, arrive at a place or a destination. So Paul's hope that he sets before him, he's like, the resurrection, that's where I'm going. That's what I want to reach. I'm going there, and I'm excited about the day that I get there. He also speaks about knowing or fellowshipping with Christ, sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. So Paul's not saying that he can literally share in Christ's sufferings or that he can add anything to what Jesus has already done, but he's saying he wants to participate and kind of come alongside in those sufferings. He wants to, he wants to experience the suffering that Christ experienced. As opposed to being a bystander or observer of Jesus' experiences, Paul is seeking to know Jesus more closely by suffering for his faith and giving up himself for the sake of the gospel. He seeks a close personal relationship with Jesus. Think of this like a time that maybe you were suffering or that you were struggling with something and the way that different friends responded to you. For example, if one friend came to you and said, I'm so sorry that you're experiencing this. I'm so sorry for what you're going through. That's really hard. And then they went on their way, moved on with their life. Compare that to a friend who says, I know what you've been through. I've been there. I've experienced what you've experienced. I've felt what you've felt. I've suffered this too. And I'm going to be right beside you as you walk through this. Think about the difference in fellowship that you would experience with those two friends. You would, you would experience a much more intimate relationship, a much more intimate fellowship with the friends that you've shared suffering with and that you've experienced comfort from. And so that's what Paul is going for here. That's what he's seeking to gain. Greater fellowship by experiencing the same kind of suffering that Jesus did and experience comfort from Jesus that could only come from him. Paul counted or considered his personal gains a detriment to himself and to his relationship with Jesus. It wasn't so much that those things were worthless in themselves. They're not a loss by their very character. There isn't inherently anything wrong with them. But compared to the greatness of knowing Jesus, they gained him nothing. So Paul chose to regard them and to view them as a detriment in his life. He chose to view them as crap, treating his achievements as gaining him nothing of real value. What I find incredibly encouraging about this passage is that Paul is writing this after 30 years of giving his life to living this way for Christ. And it's landed him in a jail cell, which is where he's writing this letter from. So I imagine maybe us visiting Paul in his jail cell in prison and he's a, maybe a late middle-aged man at this point, and we sit down across from him and say, Paul, is it worth it? For reals, though, was it worth it? After 30 years, is it worth it? And I think that he would say something similar to what he's already written in this book of Philippians. Absolutely. It was worth it. I would do it again. There's no greater way to live. 
There is something incredibly encouraging about having someone who has given up more than I probably ever will, say 30 years into that experience. Yeah, it's worth it. Paul puts a personal relationship with Jesus Christ at the very center of the Christian life. He says, I want Jesus more. And so he joyfully accepts the loss of all other things for the greatness of this personal relationship. To him, everything worth living for is found in Jesus. What do we find worth living for? Worth gaining? What are you absorbed with trying to gain in life? Maybe it's a position in a club or an organization or even within crew. Maybe it's seeking to gain all the religious accolades that you can collect, all of the volunteering, all of the serving, the hard work, the mission trips, like Paul did. Maybe it's seeking to become a member of Greek life or your position in your fraternity or sorority. Maybe it's being able to roll with a certain group of friends on the weekends. Maybe it's wanting to impress others on Monday morning with what you did over the weekend. Maybe it's killing yourself to get that perfect GPA, that perfect internship so you can get that perfect first job. Maybe it's getting a certain guy or girl to go out with you. Maybe it's even the particular major that you chose and you're seeking to find respect and gain more money through it. See, we tend to think that life is about us, making much of ourselves. And so we tend to overvalue things that don't really matter. We're absorbed with trying to gain more for ourselves in life. Maybe you're hearing all of this and you're a little bit skeptical, or you're thinking, I don't have enough of a close relationship with Jesus to even want to do any of that. I get that. I often don't want to give up much for Jesus myself because it means giving of myself, and I really like myself a little bit too much often. I think that I need to protect and provide for myself because I'm afraid that Jesus won't if I sacrifice for him. I'm afraid it won't be worth it. I'm afraid of pain. I'm afraid of hardship. Behind all of this, we long for our lives to mean something, to be significant in some way. We long to be happy. Those are all good things, but they don't come through gaining more of these things for ourselves. They come through what Jesus has already gained for us. See, regardless of how I feel about it, Jesus has already given me more than I could ever gain for myself. While I was rebelling against God, Jesus restored my relationship with God, something I could never gain for myself. When I was destined to be punished for all eternity because of my rebellion, Jesus took on my punishment instead, something I could never gain for myself. Jesus then instead gained me perfect eternal life with God forever, something I could never gain for myself. And when a heart and life that fully pleased God was beyond my reach, Jesus gave me his perfect life, his righteousness through faith in him, something I could never gain for myself. When we weigh these things against the things we try and gain for ourselves, they become silly and trite. 
that better grade or a righteous life that pleases God, that better position or a restored relationship with God, getting that guy or girl to like you or eternal punishment paid on your behalf, the ability to earn a little bit more money or eternal life at peace with God forever. So does this mean that we all drop out of school and go live like Paul, nomadic missionaries for the rest of our life? No, not necessarily, though we could do that. The difference that Paul is describing here is that he chooses not to build his life upon these things that he gains for himself. He chooses instead to build his life upon what Jesus has already gained for him. And he chooses to invest more in that which is eternity. Let's look at the logo design for our talk series for a second, which will be on the screen. There's an arrow there, with our line with two arrows, and there's a dot on that line. Eternity is what is re- represented by that line, with the two arrows, um, illustrating that it goes on forever in the past and into the present and the future. And that dot on the line represents your life. And so the question we must ask ourselves is which are we going to live for? Are we going to live for the line or are we going to live for the dot? What would you say Paul is living for? What does he believe will make his life count? Paul is living for the eternity, not the here and now. He's living for the line, not the dot. He is not looking to gain that which only exists in the dot of life. He is seeking to gain the things that will echo into eternity and to build his life on that. Now, what are those things that will last for eternity? Well, there's actually only three. There's only three things that will last for eternity. That's God, God himself, his word, and human souls, everything else is a dot. Those are the things in which Paul seeks to build his life upon. Paul is living with an eternal perspective. When we realize that all we try and gain for ourselves is worth nothing in light of eternity, we choose to give up the pursuit of gaining more for ourselves, choosing instead to build our lives upon what Jesus has already gained for us, and knowing him more. We can also live with an eternal perspective and invest in the things that actually do make our lives significant and purposeful. We're then compelled to live a life completely different from the world around us. We must then live purposefully in light of eternity. And so it must change then everything about the way that we live. We use our money to expand God's kingdom instead of our kingdom. We steward our career, using it to make much of God instead of making much of us. We embrace our suffering rather than seeking comfort and safety. We use our place of resonance to help others know Jesus more. We make sacrificial decisions knowing that God will take care of us no matter what. 
we even date other believers in a God-honoring way, seeking a spouse that would also seek to honor God for eternity with their life. It means viewing everything that you do, everything that you have, as a platform for investing in eternal rather than temporal things. You might be thinking, but how do I do all of that practically? Well, that's exactly what this talk series is about. Those are the exact things that we're going to discuss over the next six weeks. How do I live for eternity? How do I steward what I have? How do I trust God to take care of me? How do I love God more than anything? And how do I make disciples? How do I help other people know him? These are the things that God brought me face-to-face with as a college student. Over a a two-and-a-half-year period from my sophomore to my senior year, Jesus continued to invite me step-by-step to trade gain for myself, to gain him and his eternal kingdom. So that summer after my freshman year, I resolved then and there that my life would be different. No longer would I spend my life investing in things like money that were here today and gone tomorrow and mattered not in eternity. So I decided that I was going to use my next summers differently. And so the next two summers, I went on two summer missions with crew, one to Thailand and one to East Asia. It was there that I gained an incredible understanding of God's love for the nations and his desire for them to know him. And I sacrificed a lot, several things, in order to follow God into these things and to invest in eternity. I sacrificed ever doing an internship in my field in order to go to East Asia because I knew that God was calling me there. And if so, then he would take care of my career whether I had an internship line on my resume or not. I sacrificed a few weeks of income that I could have made at a summer job, and I took on a little bit of extra debt because of that. I trusted again that if this is what God wanted for me, then he would provide for me, both now and in the future. I sacrificed pleasing my parents. One in particular was opposed to me going on either of these summer missions and didn't hesitate to express their displeasure repeatedly. But I knew that this is what God wanted of me. And in view of eternity, I answered to God and God alone, not even my parents. On campus as a student, I continued to invest as I could in eternal things. I worked hard and well to finish projects and papers in my classes, but I used the rest of my spare time to invest in eternal things. I invested in the spiritual lives of women around me, leading Bible studies with crew and discipling women, calling them to invest their lives in knowing Jesus more and helping others do the same. I chose to live across the street from the dorm of the women that I was investing in so that I could walk over and continue investing in them. And I soaked up all of the godly wisdom and teaching that I could have access to from the staff. And then when God called me to give a year of my life after graduation to return to East Asia and serve full-time with crew, I sacrificed my hard-earned career because I knew again that God would provide for my future. And I answered to God 
Not Ball State, not my parents, not even my degree. And then when God called me to turn that one year into two years in East Asia, I ended up sacrificing the ability to watch my little sister graduate from high school. I also ended up sacrificing the ability to, t- to attend my grandmother's funeral. Those two things were probably the hardest and most difficult that I had sacrificed up to that point because they were, I was sacrificing more than just things that had to do with me. These were things that were connected to people that I loved. That was my life from age 20 to 24. And it was worth it. I would do it all over again. I regret none of it. Because it was in those seasons of sacrifice and some suffering that I did experience this greater fellowship with Jesus that Paul talks about. Those moments, I experienced a closeness with Jesus that are still some of the most precious in my life. In many ways, my life has continued to take on similar themes and characteristics in adult form, like spending my money more wisely so I can get out of debt more quickly, investing more financially in the church and in sending missionaries, buying a car that I can afford even if it's not the style that I would choose, choosing to be content in my singleness and serve the Lord faithfully until I married Sean at age 29. Continuing to invest not only in women around me, but in the spiritual lives of my roommates and my neighbors. And I pray that my life continues in these directions. At the end of my life, I want my life to count for eternity. I want to live for that line. What will your life count for? For far too many Americans, their life looks something like this. Work really hard, make enough money to live comfortably, take a few vacations, save for retirement, and then spend the last 20 years of your life somewhere warm, playing recreational activities and collecting seashells. Even non-Christians work hard, avoid overt sin, watch TV in the evenings, and do fun stuff on the weekends. But we, brothers and sisters, we are called and invited to so much more. We're we're called to more than this mediocre, self-indulgent existence that concludes in uselessness. So let's trade a mediocre, self-indulgent life for one that echoes into eternity. A life lived purposefully in light of eternity. Let's make our lives count for the line instead of the dot. Will you pray with me? Jesus, it's true that we so often let our lives become consumed with gaining more for ourselves. And we, we lose sight of what's important, of what really matters in life and in eternity. And so, Lord, I pray that you would remind us, that you would reveal to us, Lord, what it is that we're giving our lives to that doesn't matter. Lord, show us what it looks like to give our lives to things that will echo into eternity. Help us to live for the line, for you, 
instead of the dot. Amen.